Good morning, everyone. As uh, Pastor Jared said, my name is Charlie Dunn. I have the privilege of serving as the planting pastor of Hub Church over in Southie, uh, what you might know as the nether regions of our city, <laughs> what we affectionately call the center of the universe, um, because, of course, we all know that every great Boston movie ever made in some way has Southie as its backdrop, Right? You got Goodwill Hunting, Gone Baby, Gone, Boondock Saints, The Departed, Black Mass, Spotlight, just all movies, which as a Jesus-loving pastor, I cannot in good conscience recommend to you, <laughs> except to say, if you haven't seen them, you definitely need to see them. Uh, they're amazing. But hey, it is good to be with you this morning. Um, I, I love Jesus' church. I love the renewal expression of Jesus' church. Um, I love you enough to tell you, especially if you are a first-time guest, you need to come back next week and hear the real pastor. Um, and I love, uh, I love Pastor Jared. I love him um, and his family. It is, uh, while we are peers here in the city, it is not a stretch to say that God has at many times and in many ways um, used your pastor uh, to pastor me. And so when he asked if I would speak to you this morning, needless to say, I jumped at the opportunity. So it is good to be here. Plus, I love the, this idea, right, this truth, this reality behind the 40 Days with Jesus series that you all are in, right, that Jesus was just so utterly compelling that every single person Whoever encountered him went away changed, right? That, that he had a kind of uh, what a professor over at Boston College calls a shock about him, right? A shock about him in which when you encountered him, it meant quite literally in many respects having your heart broken in two and then being forced to decide which pieces you were going to pick up and follow. I think that's why the uh, fairly well-known historian Houston Smith noted that there, you know, there have only been two figures in human history that ever lived so radical a life that it caused people not to ask who they were, but what they were. And those two figures were, of course, Jesus Christ and Buddha. The difference between them, though, being that Buddha refused to accept worship and instead pointed people to his teachings, whereas Jesus unequivocally accepted people's worship and did so by claiming to be the embodiment of good news. Literally, the gospel, as he said in his first public sermon of sorts in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Good news to the poor, the gospel, the gospel. And so with your permission, that's what I want us to unpack this morning, the gospel. By unpacking one verse together, just one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, in which we have perhaps the greatest summary of the gospel in all of scripture, certainly in literature. And so I'll show you my hand. I'm a bad poker player. I'll show you my hand up front here. My hope for you this morning 
is that those of you who are maybe exploring uh, faith, spirituality, Christianity even, um, you would come away, you would leave here with a better understanding of why we Christians make such a big deal about a migrant Jewish rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago and who died in what feels like a very primitive way on the cross. And in the meantime, claim to be the gospel. While those of you who perhaps identify as Christians, that you would see, you would leave here seeing a little bit more clearly how all that Jesus has done changes everything about your life. It cannot leave anything the same. That's my hope. Are you willing to look at this with me today? Okay. Well, if you have a Bible, a Bible app, your worship guide, follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the great grace of being able to gather as an expression of your family in this, your city. God, we do not take that lightly because we know right now brothers and sisters in the faith around the world are gathering in fear for their lives. And so that we sit in comfortable chairs in a safe hotel in heated environments and dry, we know is your grace. And so we thank you for that. And so, God, I pray that that grace would simply remind us of a truer and deeper grace, which is the fact that you have given your life for us. You have been in our place. And, God, that changes everything, as we'll see. God, help us not leave here the same. God, and help our city be a little bit different tomorrow because of what we talked about today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Full disclosure here, um, I'm a big fan of cheeseburgers. I know that's not a popular thing to say these days, um, but the deal with cheeseburgers, as we all know, is they pair, it pairs two independently great things, cheese and burgers, <laughs> to make something even greater, a cheeseburger. 2 Corinthians 5.21 pairs two independently great clauses, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, two independently great clauses to make the greater point that the gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamentally the good news of, write this down, Jesus in your place. Jesus in your place. Check this out. In the first clause, we read all about Jesus, right? We're told, for example, he knew no sin, which is to say that he was, he was sinless, right? That's always been the testimony of Scripture and consequently Orthodox Christianity. In all 33 years of Jesus' earthly life, he never sinned. Imagine that. Now, I think we need to be clear because I think when we hear the word sin, what do we hear? We hear, if you're anything like me, we hear like really bad rule breaking, right? Rule breaking on steroids, if you will. 
But when the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't do so, you understand, from a strictly behavioral perspective. In passages like Romans 1.23, for example, which says that Adam and Eve, going all the way back to the beginning, the very first sin, if you will, says they, quote, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, in that kind of verse, we see that sin is, is first about what we prefer and only second about what we do. It's first about what we prefer and only second about what we do, namely preferring anyone or anything over God. Adam and Eve, you might remember, they ate that forbidden fruit simply because they believed it would give them a type of knowledge or control about their lives. In other words, they preferred something over God, and they sinned. That's always how the Bible describes sin, as an, as an issue of our hearts, ever before it becomes an action of our hands. Right? Often to remind myself of this truth, or just kind of help others see that maybe we are have this tendency to prefer things over God, I'll, I'll ask a question like this. Okay, here it is. If God showed up right now, right now, and he said to you, hey, I want to make you a deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to guarantee you will go to heaven. You'll enjoy everything a perfect eternity has to offer, right? Everything you can imagine making life perfect and happy and meaningful and secure forever. It's all yours. I guarantee it. But Jesus will not be there. Would you take that deal? Would you take that deal? I think when you understand it that way, sin as preferring things over God, you begin to realize how ingrained sin is in all of us. Even engraved it is in all of us. As Jeremiah 17 says, the sin of Judah, that's, that was God's people, by the way. God's people. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Right? Sin is more than just rule-breaking, according to Scripture. Rules, you understand, they simply name our sin. They simply name our sin. They don't create sin in us when we're told, for example, in the Ten Commandments not to covet, or, or which is another way of saying preferring things over God. You understand the, the propensity and ability to covet is already in us. That commandment is just naming that sin in hopes of restraining it in some capacity. All the commandment does is simply name what's natural to us in hopes of constraining it. Sin is more than just something we do. It's something we are. It's something we are. Most of you, I, I, I see by scanning the room here, you are too young to have seen the original Silence of the Lambs movie starring Anthony Hopkins. And if, by the way, we could just keep between you and I that I'm not sharing with you all these terrible movies that you should watch. <laughs> just don't tell your pastor. It's fine. Um, but Silence of the Lambs starring Anthony Hopkins as the, as the great serial killer Hannibal Lecter. Okay? Um, it's one of the all-time great horror films. We know this because it's so accurate in many respects uh, about our humanity. 
there's this great scene. One of the scenes, Officer Clarice Sterling. Remember her? She's the police officer, the detective. Um, she is just stunned at how evil Dr. Lecter is. She's talking to him behind this cage, right, behind these bars, and he's, he's trapped, and she is just blown away that somebody could be as satanic even, as evil as Dr. Lecter. And she asks him this, quote, what has happened to you? And if you remember the scene, Lecter responds, nothing has happened to me. I happened to me. And of course, it's, it's one of the all-time horrifying cinematic statements because it's so true, right? Our ingrained tendency to prefer things over God is what makes us live, as the French mathematician Blaise Pascal said, like, listen to this, deposed kings and queens, whereby we are, we are made in the image of God. Right? And this capable of immense uh, brilliance and beauty and love and knowledge and advancement, even communion with God. And yet, we are raging to be back at the center of things. Right? To be the center of attention. To procure at all costs what we prefer in life. That's sin. That's sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus knew no sin. He never once in all 33 years of his adult male life preferred someone or something over God the Father. Imagine that. And yet we're also told that he was made to be sin for our sake. Now, notice, that doesn't say Jesus became a sinner, right? That would contradict him being sinless. It says he was made to be sin. That's an important distinction. I'll give you an analogy to, to help you think, uh, think through this, because it's a very important one. Um, imagine a magnifying glass, maybe one you, you, you played with as a, as a kid. Um, you, you remember if you held a magnifying glass... Right? Under the sun's rays, especially on a hot summer day, for example, what would happen? It could start a little, a little fire. Maybe you've never done this. Again, I grew up in the 80s, so bear with me. This is what we did before video games, people. The TV and electricity. Um, you, 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 it would start a little fire. So if you focused the white spot of the sun's concentrated light on a, a leaf or something, that leaf over time, would begin to burn. Verse 21, when it says that Jesus was made to be sin for you, what that's saying is not that Jesus became a sinner, but that on the cross, all the ways that you and I have preferred something over God, all of our sin and the, the, the wretchedness that follows that, all of that got so focused and concentrated onto Christ that even though he was without sin, he nevertheless began to burn. He suffered the fiery wrath of God, the just punishment for your and my refusal to prefer God. That's what was going on, by the way, during those three dark hours 
on Good Friday. Ray after ray of your sin and my sin was being so focused on Jesus' sinless soul like a beam of light through a magnifying glass. So that fully lucid, fully conscious Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for who? For our sake. For our sake. You say, hold on, how was that for our sake? That seems very dramatic. Why go to all those lengths? How was that for our sake? What did that accomplish? Take a look at the second clause, which says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a very clear, if not direct, assumption in that statement right there, which is that God is righteous, the righteousness of God. God is righteous, which simply means that there is a, there, there is a perfect rightness about God. Right? Everything from his affections to his actions are perfectly right and perfectly ordered, always in balance. Right? Righteousness in the Bible, you understand, it's not merely about um, private morality, which is, I think, how we tend to think about it. You know, like, like being sexually pure or um, having integrity or keeping up with your spiritual disciplines, those are, though that is all good and, and, and much needed. But righteousness in the Bible, the way the Bible speaks about it, is in much grander terms. It speaks about it in terms of whole life flourishing. Out of which, then, things like private morality come. God is the source of all righteousness. Everything in him and about him is right and rightly ordered. Consequently, for him to be righteous, what needs to happen? Sin has to be punished. In other words, injustice can't stand. You can't leave injustice out there in the midst of righteousness. And as, as we've already looked at, sin is basically cosmic injustice in the form of preferring things over God, preferring created things, the creature, as Romans 1.23 says, over our creator who brought us into existence in the first place. So, follow the logic here. If God is righteous, such that he must righteously punish sin, then you and I, as sinners, no matter what we do, can't stand. Deserve to be punished. I know this is all very, very bad news. Bad news always comes before good news, so stick with me here. Okay? We can't stand your sin and my sin, all the ways that you have this week, maybe this morning, and I have preferred things over God. People, things, desires, pleasures, activities, experiences, forms of security, whatever. All of those things, that leaves us legally guilty before God. Legally guilty before God. And no amount of, and I know this is very popular in our city, no amount of good works and good things that you do can make up for that. Imagine it like this. Someone breaks into your apartment, right? And they destroy all your most valuable stuff. Then they get caught. Law enforcement figures out who it was. They catch them. And they are standing there before the judge, Right? And so they start arguing. Right? They start going, well, hold on, hold on, you don't understand how committed to the PTA I am. Right? Judge, I use my weekends to do community service. 
And, and by the way, I only eat fair trade, farm-to-table organic foods. I am a good person. You don't understand. Now, you might say, hey, that's all, that's all great. <laughs> that's all great. But that doesn't restore what you've destroyed. Your sin, my sin, it destroys, it violates God's glory. And therefore, it deserves punishment. And there's nothing that we can do to undo that. What 2 Corinthians 5.21 is telling you is that on the cross, Jesus Christ took the punishment you and I deserved. Meaning, listen, listen to this. He did not just die for you. He died instead of you. He died instead of you. So that, it says, you could, what's the end of the verse? Become, say it with me, his righteousness. Which is to say, friends, in Jesus Christ, you're not just declared not guilty. right? You're declared righteous. Right? And I know that's, that's, that's a big theological word. You're declared justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's a massive distinction, don't you see? Because, you know, as, as one person said, that, that's the difference between, hey, you're not guilty, and so you're free to go, you're let off the hook, and you're righteous, so you're free to come. You're free to come. Right? It's not merely just being let off the hook or, or, or freed from jail. It's being rewarded, being given something like a, like a Congressional Medal of Honor or massive promotion. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for you, you can now become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther, during the Reformation, called the great exchange. The great exchange, whereby Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was an exchange. An exchange for you. He took your place of condemnation. He became your sin, we're told, so that you could receive and I could receive his position of privilege, his righteousness. And so on the cross, Jesus was treated as having done everything you've done and will do. And in the resurrection, you and I get to be treated as having done everything he did. And if you just scan through scripture for like a hot minute, you see he did some crazy stuff. Stuff I would love to be able to do. Corey Ten Boom. Uh, who, who you might know famously survived a Nazi concentration camp. Um, I think she said it best in describing all this. She said this, On the cross, God hurled your sins and mine, past, present, and future, into the deepest part of the sea. And then he put up a sign saying, No fishing allowed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live and died the death you and I were condemned to die. 
Jesus in your place. Friends, receiving that very simple and yet profound truth, a truth that is so simple that children can understand it and so profound that scholars can't mind the depths of it, but simply receiving that truth, it changes at least three things, very practical things for you this morning. First, it changes the way you relate to God. It fundamentally alters the way you relate to God. For so many of us, myself included, for years, the way we naturally relate to God is out of either fear or pride. Fear because we think we need to do something for him, live a certain way in order for him to accept us and bless us, to, you know, to see us as righteous. And pride because of thinking we are doing something well enough to make ourselves righteous. But that's not the gospel. Right? The gospel, Jesus in your place, means your relationship to God this morning is not predicated on what you do or don't do, but entirely on what Jesus has done for you. You understand every, every other religion, and I've done a little bit of study on all kinds of world religions. This is one of the things the Lord used to bring me to him. To, to see the uniqueness of, of Christianity. Every other world religion, and I would say even philosophy or way of living, period, says some version of the following. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I do the stuff, if I uphold the teachings, if I ascribe to the rules, if I'm faithful to this thing, I'll be acceptable. We even have a phrase for it. You ever heard of it? It's called being a good Christian. If you grew up in the Catholic church as I did, it's called being a good Catholic versus a lapsed Catholic. We have phrases for this. If I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, it turns that on its head. It says, I'm accepted. I'm made the righteousness of God. Therefore I obey. Therefore I obey. It's incredibly countercultural, maybe even unheard of. Because instead of you and I having to develop our righteousness this morning, put together a portfolio or a resume that shows our experience and our educational levels and present it to God, offer it up to God knowing it's never going to be enough, which is where the fear comes from, or thinking that it might be, which is where the pride comes from, God has instead developed a perfect righteousness for you and for those who believe, slides it across the desk and says, this is your resume. I give it to you. You see, in the gospel, Jesus' righteousness is credited to you, imputed to you. It's like being like a direct deposit into your spiritual bank account. It goes straight to you. Which is why, again, Martin Luther, he came up with this Latin phrase. Throw this one out at your next party, you'll get you a lot of, a lot of acclaim here. Simul justus et peccator. Say that with me. Simul, justus, et peccator. You now know Latin. Um, what that means is, quite literally translated, we are simultaneously justified, justus, and sinners. Peccator. What he was trying to say is, it's not that you and I, as sinful people, become righteous enough to God so that God then declares us or like categorizes us as righteous. No, no, 
It's that while we were sinners, while we are still sinful, God declares you righteous simply because of your faith in Jesus. The way you relate to God gets fundamentally changed because you don't now relate to him out of fear or pride, but rather out of, out of love and desire because you see the extent to which he has gone to forgive, justify, save, and credit you righteousness. It changes the way you relate to God. Second, it changes the way you relate to yourself. Uh, Franz Kafka, the author, he wrote a book, a fairly famous book entitled The Trial. Maybe you've read it. Um, but it's about a man who is accused of a crime, but he's never told exactly what he did. And so what happens is the more he's accused throughout the story, the more he begins to question his innocence. He starts thinking, I mean, they, they keep telling me I did something wrong. So maybe I did. Maybe I did. They put me behind bars telling me there's a, there's a crime that I committed and it's a heinous one. So maybe I did do something wrong. And he starts questioning his innocence more and more and more until he starts believing he did do something wrong. He starts living in this state of fear and worthlessness and like he's set to be punished and condemned. What's interesting is if you read why Kafka wrote that book, some of his kind of like back notes behind it, his journal entries about it, um, what you find is that he's actually giving a commentary through a, a fictional story about how you and I generally relate to ourselves. He says this, and I quote, modern man or woman who no longer believes in sin still find themselves in a state of guilt we have a deep, profound sense that if we were examined, we would not pass. We don't feel right. We have a deep sense that we are not lovable the way we are. So we use filters on Instagram. He didn't say that, but... <laughs> we have no inward validation of our worthiness. You hear what he's saying, right? He's saying even if you don't believe in sin or Jesus, the need for Jesus, the way you and I naturally relate to ourselves testifies to the truth of both. We feel as if we're not lovable the way we are, so we've got to clean ourselves up. And if you don't feel that way, by the way, it's okay. You're a narcissist, which is worse. Okay, We all feel this way, right? Like, like we just feel like we're being accused of something all the time. We're always questioning if we're, if we're good enough and smart enough and beautiful enough and successful enough, and so we're constantly working for our identity rather than from it. And as a result, we experience all kinds of psychosis, anxiety, frustration, depression, even suicidal tendencies, narcissism to cover it up. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we're tremendously busy trying to cover up our nakedness and get back the glory that's been lost. It, it, it's as if life is one giant episode of Survivor, and every day we're just trying not to get kicked off the island. Amen? Or is this just me? Please raise a hand. <laughs> right? What the gospel does, though, is it changes all that. Because Jesus in your place means not only do you not have to earn your stay on the island, as it were, anymore, 
because he's earned it for you. But listen to this. In the sight of God the Father, you are right now as is the very Son of God himself. Friends, when you really take that in, and I mean you let that dawn on your heart, what happens is you begin to find a freedom to live from a secure identity rather than like a human hamster tirelessly working for it 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week. It changes the way you relate to yourself. And then third and finally, it changes the way you relate to others. I think so much of the, the hurt and the division we, we, we are finding around us right now, even perhaps experiencing, is just a function of, of seeing people through the what I'll call normal categories. Right? We, we, we see people as either rich or poor, powerful or weak, Republican or Democrat, right? Uh, white or black or brown, educated or blue collar, people we like, people we don't like, people that are like us, people that aren't. And what happens is it leads to all kinds of division and hurt, right? We, we, we get afraid and so we hive off and we, we huddle up into groups of people that are like us, right? We see people demonizing one another across the aisle, but friends, what the gospel does is it changes the way you relate to others because no longer do you see people according to those kinds of normal categories. Rather, you begin to see them as either sinners who've received the truth of Jesus in their place or those who haven't yet but desperately need to. It levels the playing field. And so now you begin to see and relate to others with, with equity and grace and opportunity, which tears down so much of the hurt and the division that we've had done to us and that we do to others. See, friends, the reason we make such a big deal about a migrant Jewish rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago and who died in what feels like a very primitive way is because for those who receive him and his work on their behalf, it changes everything. Don't you see? It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you relate to yourself. It even changes the way you relate to others. So let me ask, have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is your opportunity if you haven't. If you have, have you been baptized as a public declaration of that? And are you daily sharing this good news of Jesus in our place with those around you? Because, friends, it changes everything.